Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Jason Barney for Educational Renaissance. Today, I want to share with you on the topic of why the history of narration matters. And this is my fourth and final part in this series where I discuss Charlotte Mason's pedagogy of narration in historical perspective. So what I'm trying to do here is to look at now that we've gone through this history of narration in the classical tradition, classical era, Renaissance, what was Charlotte Mason doing? How did her recommendations for narration, her use of the practice of narration, compare with these other great thinkers like John Locke, Quintilian, Aelius Theon, Erasmus, and Comenius? Where does she fit? What can we learn about her use of narration by comparison with those? So tune in with me here. I've got three big points that I want to focus on. Those are, first, how Charlotte Mason had a a focus on rich texts, how the main goal, second, of her use of narration was on the side of the memory of content as opposed to the training in rhetorical style, and third and lastly, the different sorts of methods of narration that she proposed from oral to written and then adding on drawn and acted narration as well. And I want to conclude with 12 propositions about the history of narration and Charlotte Mason's adaptation of it, and then some suggestions. So a series of propositions and suggestions will conclude our thoughts for today. Well, I'm excited to to dive in with you on this. I, I first started this series on the history of narration because there were a number of loose ends for me uh, coming to the end of writing a classical guide to narration that um, I wanted to explore. I had touched on a number of these different things, but I hadn't taken the time to analyze in detail those uh, steps in the history of narration that I had been seeing. And so I think this lecture here gives us a, a real final encapsulation of at least some initial findings that I've got here on how narration was used, how Charlotte Mason took what was there and uh, was innovative with it. I think she was at least as innovative in her use of narration as any of the previous educators. And of course, she made it in a way this central learning strategy or, or global practice in a way that I think has support from modern research on retrieval practice. But again, my big theme for this whole series on the importance of the history of narration has been this idea that when we understand the history of narration, we actually can bring two modern camps together. The camp of Charlotte Mason educators, whether they're working in home education or in a number of different schools and groups of schools that are devoted to Charlotte Mason. There's that following for Charlotte Mason. Then there's this whole classical Christian education movement with its various 
subparts as well. From the home education movements there, like classical conversations, to the different sorts of classical schools around the nation and really around the world. And I think these two camps have a lot to say to one another. And I think that Charlotte Mason is best understood as an educator within the liberal arts tradition, the broader classical education movement. And narration becomes a little touch point for that because we might have supposed that narration was simply Charlotte Mason's invention and that it represented a particular type of kind of Christian modernism that she was um, advocating for in her day and that we might also then want to jump on board with as opposed to her drawing from this long tradition. And I think, of course, there are many ways in which she is new, but she's also taking from the old, like she said herself, of her methods in her sixth volume. Uh, some of it is new, much of it is old. So with that kind of framing of this whole thing, let's dive on in and see how, given you know the other lectures or other blog articles that you can go see on the classical era and renaissance era use of narration, what's Charlotte Mason doing then? And the first issue I want to focus our attention on is the use of rich text. So Charlotte Mason famously endorsed rich texts, what she might call living books, as the primary source that students are narrating from. And um, this is stated at explicitly in so many places in Charlotte Mason, but she explicitly addresses the issue of oral teaching or the oral lecture and the problems with it in her third volume. What Charlotte Mason is doing is she's bringing up for, for her audience in that day some of the practical realities of why expecting teachers to lecture, give oral teaching as a primary mode of instruction is not as powerful, as good, as helpful for students' long-term love of learning and ability to learn on their own as this sort of book-based method of teaching that included narration as the primary learning strategy. And her reason for saying this is, is just a careful look at what lectures are when teachers in her day and age are giving them. She says that they're they're mostly working up from uh, the teacher's own reading of a bunch of different texts, some sort of quick lecture that has a reading made easy style that the teacher maybe doesn't know have this kind of central living knowledge of herself that she could really make it vibrant for the students. It's mostly just a kind of informational lecture that really has information that could be got better at the source itself. And she's pointing out here that teachers have limitations. They're not all masterminds or scholars. We could easily contrast this with um, the expectation of Erasmus and his work in education. He is expecting the master to be indeed a mastermind, to use Charlotte Mason's term. He is supposed to have read widely in Latin and Greek in all these areas and be able to prepare these incredible lectures to stir students, give them exactly what they need 
For Erasmus, there's still a focus on rich texts as the primary core, but the the teacher, the instructor, should be able to stir interest in an incredible way and is supposed to be a scholar, in essence, in himself. And, of course, we might think that Erasmus is thinking primarily of teaching for older students, and Charlotte Mason is thinking primarily of teaching for younger students, and that's a contrast, but also things had changed from the centuries between Erasmus and um, Charlotte Mason. Really, for Charlotte Mason, we're at the cusp of an education being offered to all. I think of the liberal education for all movement near the end of her life, and this simple idea that we're trying to give school education now, in a way, for the first time in the history of the world, to all the, to all the children of the British kingdom. And so that is simply a different, different sort of experience when you have that. It's not really possible for teachers to be scholars and have that sort of approach. And Charlotte Mason says that even if you could, it wouldn't be best for children, that it would be best for children to have one philosopher guide and not be, you know, shunted to and fro between a number of different teachers or instructors. They should have one person who is their mentor and guide, which makes me think of a, you know, just a podcast that Patrick and Colby and I recorded a few weeks ago, just thinking about mentorship and the importance of that in an atmosphere. And so I think Charlotte Mason has an incredible point here that points toward the the importance of rich texts as your primary source. This, of course, is very different from um, Erasmus and Comenius, where a lecture from a teacher is actually the source that students are supposed to narrate. And they wouldn't have had easily accessible books in the same way that we have with Charlotte Mason. So these different moves seem to be important. They, they make sense. We would expect this in a way that when you have so many rich books cheaply available in Charlotte Mason's day, she could make the move to prioritize them in a way that they just frankly couldn't be prioritized previous. Now, I want to mention there are a couple exceptions to this focus on rich tax only for Charlotte Mason. In her sixth volume, she mentions this um, high-level French course for some of uh, her House of Education students where the French mistress would actually give a lecture on French history in French of about an half an hour's length. And then the students would tell it back in French in detail. We should note that this is her advanced students. They've had many years of learning and speaking French before they're at this point of using narration from a lecture in this way. But they also um, have been narrating in from texts in foreign language. Uh, she mentions this development, whether in French or German or Latin, that uh, as a method for kind of even early training, they would, among other things, be having a story told to them or that they could read from. So this is a rich text sort of um, kind of building project that gets to them narrating from a lecture. And uh, they would then translate it, perhaps the, the 
teacher would help the students through translating it. In the case of the Latin text, the Latin teacher would have them thoroughly study it in terms of its syntax and grammar and vocabulary before moving to a narration exercise from foreign language. So that's an exception that there is a, a sense that you could do a lecture that then was narrated by students, even a lecture of 30 minutes length in a foreign language, and it works. So that's an exception for Charlotte Mason, and it just points to the fact that Erasmus and Comenius' ideas are workable. And perhaps something we could consider as classical educators or Charlotte Mason educators today. There is also the fact that Charlotte Mason answered questions in the parents review after one of her kind of clear statements about the importance of narrating from rich texts versus oral teaching and she concedes that we cannot do without the oral lesson. So we know from that it's not a full ixnay. You can never have an oral lesson. It must always be a rich text. She says, we cannot do without the oral lesson to introduce, to illustrate, to amplify, to sum up. My stipulation is that oral lessons should be like visits of angels and that the child who has to walk through life and has to find his intellectual food in books or go without shall not be first taught to go upon crutches. So she thinks of the oral lesson as potentially a, a great, incredible inspirational experience if it only happens every once in a blue moon. And therefore, a teacher could work up that sort of power uh, in terms of a vital, vibrant, exciting, and, you know, well thought through lecture of some kind. The, the teacher could do that then if it were like a, a visit of angels every once in a while, uh, but that it ultimately would, would teach students to go upon crutches. It would be a crutch for them to have oral lessons continually and not learn how to engage with books well. Now, we might think to ourselves that, you know, Charlotte Mason has this very practical understanding of the fact that students need to go on learning for the rest of their life. They need to have a rich intellectual life where they continue to take in knowledge. And the way that they're going to do that in her day and age is primarily through joining the reading public, being readers themselves, and reading books. They can't make their way to a university lecture in normal daily life. And um, one of the things we might notice that our world is now in the midst of a revolution that is changing that, where we can have access to some of the best, most inspiring, well-spoken scholars on any particular topic for free in video or podcast format, video or audio. And so we are in a different world here now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we should abandon the place of rich text for that world, but the idea is that modern adults can get a rich source of intellectual nutriment by ear, and more and more of us are. So that should be taken into consideration, I think, as we read Charlotte Mason. Well, that's our first big issue of the focus on rich texts. The second was the main goal of using narration. As I've taken us through some of these different classical educators that used narration and recommended it in particular ways, 
there's a, a spectrum of at least two big main goals. And um, the first that we have with Eilis Theon and Quintilian, later on with John Locke, is the main goal of developing the students' fluency and style in rhetoric. It started as a rhetorical training, right? A narration is a progymnosmata. And we have it from that earliest book of preliminary exercises for rhetorical training. So the goal, the primary goal there was the student's development of style, their ability to speak well and fluently about something. Then we have this shift in the Renaissance era with Erasmus and Comenius, where the focus becomes not rhetorical style, but content, memory or knowledge of the content itself and the, the focus shifts from style to substance so that the main point of narration is that students would learn it and know it and through becoming the teacher and telling they would take it into themselves. Of course, if you go back earlier, there was the expectation that students would take in words and phrases, ideas, they would probably even take in a whole host of knowledge about things, but the point, right, the main goal for those early rhetorical teachers was that students would learn to speak well for themselves and come up with their own original thought. We have that shift in the Renaissance, and what I believe is happening in Charlotte Mason is that she, probably through interacting with John Locke and Comenius, I've pointed out a number of similarities in thought, idea, phrasing, to John Locke's work on education, and then we know that she draws from Comenius and quotes from him in her works. And so what I think she does is she's taking, and if you'll look at the table that I put in the blog article, click in through and, and get to the blog article, you can see a table I put together that maps out the, this, all these three different ideas and where all the different you, um, classical educators fall in terms of their recommendations for narration. But, but she's taking from the bottom left of that focus on style and John Locke in particular, I think. And then looking to Comenius for the focus instead on substance and going, let's take the, the use of rich texts the focus on substance and merge those together into what's the bottom right of my table. And that's where Charlotte Mason primarily lands. And I think this is an innovative leap that again makes sense in her context and is incredibly wonderful in a way. There's this new focus upon rich text with the goal of content, memory or knowledge of content. We've taken a shift from a sort of rhetorical focus or a liberal arts training focus toward a scientific focus, a focus upon the knowledge that a student is gaining from these rich texts. And I should hasten to add that Charlotte Mason definitely has the value of a student's style and rhetorical ability, their composition, their ability to compose original thoughts that are um, high quality in mind. And she references that a number of times, but her approach is more laissez-faire in that regard. She is not recommending what Locke recommends, which is to correct the student, right? Have the young child tell you a story and then let's correct their fault in the way of putting it together. Locke is entirely focused on like, let's get them doing it better. 
Charlotte Mason seems to indicate that, that she believes those sorts of issues will come right if you just have them narrating all the time, cranking out the narrations of good quality rich text, living texts and content, and that they'll kind of naturally and implicitly take on a good style and develop their own quality style. And she really does not want what she calls a stilted style to develop. She's very light on explicit composition training. She does not want to give them this strong structure in her thinking about composition training or public speaking that many classical educators who are really focused on the revival of rhetoric are simply not going to be satisfied, in my view. They're not gonna be satisfied with Charlotte Mason on this. We could perhaps see where Charlotte Mason's coming from. If we think about what it would be like to, you know, in her day and age, have some heavy-handed rhetorical training that's focused on an exact replica of particular styles, and um, she's coming in a particular, you know, um, appreciation of the Romantic era that I think makes sense of her approach. And I think both approaches are valid depending on what sort of goal you're coming um, for or you're going for in terms of students. Are you okay with a little bit of a stilted style with some some extra structure there in your rhetorical approach coming from so that they have that structure then can build with build onto it? Or like Charlotte Mason, do you prefer just to aim at so much rich content and knowledge and give them so much practice in speaking and writing that they almost develop their own original style of its course. You could see that people today, I think classical Christian educators and Charlotte Mason educators might, both of them, be drawn towards either of those goals, either of those, if you will, extremes on the spectrum as being valuable. So I think that's one thing we can learn from this whole approach is I think in context where Charlotte Mason's coming from, how it's different from other classical educators in the tradition and represent a particular type of approach to how you get both what, what you would view as a quality rhetorical style and um, a mind rich and filled with valuable content for the students to deliver. Well, that's the big idea um, regarding the, the second issue or the main goal of using narration. Our last issue here is the method of narration. And um, my listeners will probably be familiar with both oral and written narration and how Charlotte Mason developed this div fully worked out plan for in schools how that would develop in terms of students narrating orally first, uh, even having exams in which students would orally express what they had remembered in terms of a, a, a story or narrative or knowledge about history or science or anything else, and then slowly develop their ability to do written narrations. We see this um, even starting in Quintilian, also referenced in John Locke, and um, one of the unique things though about Charlotte Mason is the idea of drawn or acted out narrations. And you can at least see this very clearly in some articles that Karen Glass has quoted from in her, her work on narration, the art of 
narrating no and tau. But uh, there, we actually see this development some years after Charlotte Mason has passed on and the Parents National Education Union is continuing and Helena Wicks in particular talks about narrating in um, these ways that use the fine and performing arts. She emphasizes that students should still tell about what they've drawn or how they're acting something out or some art product that they've made, even like a sculpture, and, and that words really are needed to do it justice. So that's, I think, interesting to hear her emphasizing that. We, of course, know that even in Charlotte Mason's day in the PNEU schools, there was a practice of illustrating particular moments from the text that students were reading. So maybe in an afternoon, they might draw an illustration. There might be question as to whether or not Charlotte Mason herself would have considered that a narration or a technique of narrating. I think it's possible that maybe not. She would have just thought of that as a different way of responding to text, but I know there's variation there. Of course, um, right after her death, just within a year, we do know of an acted narration that was recorded in the Parents Review where just took a few minutes, but uh, students vividly acted something out and there were critiques given by students and teachers on it at a gathering of the Parents National Education Union and some different schools in the movement. So the idea of an acted narration, I think is possible. Words are involved there. Multiple students then would be involved in the narration. It's obvious to say that in this case, Charlotte Mason didn't envision active narrations happening every day. It was an occasion that added some extra freshness and variety and spice to the normal daily work of narrating in oral and written forms. That's the main thing for narration. But I think it is important to see how in her tradition, the legacy of Charlotte Mason is to see other creative ways of narrating or how narrating could be done through other creative expressions. So I think that's an important development of narration worth mentioning that you really don't see as an idea previously. And I think this comes about in a way because of the fact that Sherilyn Mason had focused so much upon narration as this central learning strategy. And so because of how important it was, there grew a tendency to see other ways of responding to text as more analogous to narration or even a part of narration. So narration kind of expands in its definition to include some other things. So this is um, narration as Charlotte Mason practiced it in historical perspective. And I think I've learned a few things through delving into these different texts, comparing them with Charlotte Mason, and I, I want to propose a few fixed points as well as suggestions for how we might use narration going forward. What, what is the future of narration? Given this development, what might be the new step or next step in using narration? How best can we understand the history of narration and, and where we want to take it in the future as classical and Charlotte Mason educators going forward? And so let me propose a few things. I've got 
12 uh, propositions or suggestions that I just want to run through real quickly with you and make some suggestions. I look forward to developing these thoughts further, um, perhaps taking this whole series and doing a little bit more research, working it up into a short little treatise itself on the history of narration and how we can use narration going forward. So first, I would note that narration began in the rhetorical tradition and had the main goal of developing students' style in rhetorical training. That was its first genesis. Um, but then Renaissance educators, second, shifted the focus of narration from books to lectures. And the goal of narration, at the same time, they switched from style to knowledge of content. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, there may be a missing step in there for how narration could have been used in the Middle Ages. I haven't yet found clear statement of narration as a pedagogical practice in um, the Middle Ages. That doesn't mean there weren't narration-like engagements with books, but I'm, I'm trying to be careful in my definition of narration as a practice with this long form telling as a, as a definition, right, to hold us together by the students. So, so that's the big major shift from classical era to Renaissance era. And then we have third, Charlotte Mason adapting narration from the tradition for her context in accordance with her own philosophy of education and her understanding of how the mind worked. So she wasn't just drawing from uh, the practices blindly. She was, you know, moving into new territory in terms of her own philosophy of education, how she thought the mind worked. And since the mind worked that way, therefore narration should be used in this way. And so we can see particularly her innovations in narration were to take the focus on rich texts from the classical era and then join it with the main goal of knowledge of content from Renaissance educators. So she took those two things, joined them together, made something new. That was her main contribution. Um, she also elevated it to a core status of the primary teaching and learning tool of the PNEU. And again, I mentioned earlier that I think this development has the support of modern research on the value of retrieval practice. And I will note that the earlier educators didn't seem to have narration as this central learning tool. It um, met a fringe need. Uh, fringe maybe isn't the right term, but it, it met one pedagogical goal. It was like one pedagogical tool among several that these teachers envisioned. There was some sense of how valuable it was. Let me be clear, right? Quintilian even mentions how incredibly important it is as uh, even scholars, right? Even teachers, professors, it's hard for them. And if you've learned this, you can, you know, you have the tool of learning itself. We have those indications there. We have Comenius saying things and Erasmus saying things about how necessary it is to do this, but it wasn't in the same way, as far as I can gather, every day, pretty much every subject sort of tool of learning as Charlotte Mason made it. So I think because of these 
steps that um, I've laid out here in the history of narration that we can conclude a few things about where we as classical or Charlotte Mason educators would want to take narration going forward. Given that this history is the case, I would imagine that classical Christian educators who adopt narration might want to revive some of the rhetorical training pedagogy from John Locke, Quintilian, and Aelius Theon. They might want to focus more on style and be more willing to correct students' narrations with style and structure in mind, having more of a rhetorical training focus than Charlotte Mason herself did. Those who follow Charlotte Mason even, though, I would also say, might want to consider carefully her concerns about this training and style or composition and, and think through whether or not her concerns in her day that she had about creating a stilted style were responding to some specific trends in composition or rhetoric instruction during her day and whether those therefore might want to be qualified. This is my eighth point that perhaps some Masonites will opt for more explicit rhetorical training than she might have envisioned, even while making sure to avoid the errors that she was warning against. So they may think we can avoid a stilted style with, by, but still do some of this rhetorical training in a particular way where we take Charlotte Mason's warnings about creating a stilted style seriously, but perhaps engage in a few more corrections and a little bit more occasional focus on explicit training in rhetoric than Charlotte Mason did or recommended exactly. I think that's possible. I think there will also be some followers of Charlotte Mason who will go, no, we side entirely with Mason here. We do not want our children developing a stilted style and we are not going to focus on rhetorical training. I think those would, I, what I'm saying is, I think those would both be legitimate viewpoints or approaches to take within the broader classical tradition, more of a Renaissance philosophical approach to learning that, that just majors on knowledge and content, but uh, it's definitely within the classical uh, tradition to focus on some of that training in style in particular ways. That's We've got a big camp here. We have two sides, the sort of philosophical scientific wing of classical educators and the rhetorical wing of classical educators. And those have been warring since Plato and Socrates' day about which is the best approach and uh, which is in a way um, the most pragmatic and the most focused on truth. And so I think that's a broader conversation and we'll have people going both sides from both camps. Now, another point and final um, kind of set of steps I want to make here is that technology has changed. And I mentioned this earlier, but I think that given the technological developments of our modern world in audio and video recording, even things like what we're doing right now, the free accessibility of high quality material from what I think even Charlotte Mason would call living voices and scholars. I think both Masonites and classical Christian educators might actually want to expand the role of inspirational lectures and not just rich texts, but inspirational lectures and oral teaching in the classroom 
for education with narration still being the learning tool for either content or style. I feel like we're moving, we could move up into the Renaissance era sort of approach and have more narrating from lectures in the days ahead, whether those lectures be from our teachers uh, who hopefully have some savor of the mastermind, even if they have to work hard to build that up every few weeks. But we might also have some high quality audio and video lecture material that is inspirational, rich, living, even by Charlotte Mason's highest criteria that we want students narrating from. And with that move up then, we might have them focusing on knowledge of content, but we might also push them into focusing on the style of it. So classical Christian educators, for instance, might feel that their instructors, especially in secondary schools or rhetoric schools or video instructors that we have uh, access to, reach the level of masterminds, what Charlotte Mason would call them. And therefore, inspirational lectures might play a larger role in their schools or in online courses for um, home-educated students. And, and so if we have this kind of new revival of the power of the spoken word going on through these video recording and sharing technologies, perhaps the next important innovation for us in training our children with narration would be actually to employ video recordings of some of the greatest modern orators for students then to narrate from with the goal of them developing their own rhetorical style while also learning content. We might think, some of us might think of TED Talks, it's 15 minute talks. What, what if we were trying to train students in rhetoric in our upper school years or high school years, and we had them narrate from these incredibly good orators of today. Would that be a valuable exercise to give them and help them imitate and develop in terms of their ability to give incredible speeches themselves? Perhaps that would be something we could do. Well, 12th and finally, per perhaps we will want to make sure that we don't go to an extreme with that and focus entirely on oral spoken content. We want to focus on rich texts. I think it's uh, strategic in our modern world. Either Charlotte Mason or classical educators, I don't think, are going to abandon the great books, as they're sometimes called. And in our day and age, for students to grow up having a facility with the thoughts of the best minds of earlier eras through written texts and the, the high quality, detailed, developed syntax of many of those works, that's never been more crucial, more important for students to gain moral wisdom and historical judgment. So this has been our final lecture on the history of narration and why it matters for us as classical Charlotte Mason educators. I think there's a lot to consider here about how we might use narration in other creative ways going forward, given what we now understand about how 
narration developed in its various stages. So if you liked this, um, engage with it, like it, share it with someone else, develop some thoughts with me. Do you think there are other ways that we can help inspire um, our students through the use of narration. Perhaps there's something else I've missed. If you find any other text that I've referenced here from the history of narration that, um, that, that talk about using narration, please share them with me. I want to make this as, as thorough as possible. These are the core places that I've found it so far. And uh, we will keep reading and orally narrating written narrations, we will keep giving talks and having students narrate and seeing the wondrous learning that results from this process. Thanks for engaging and hope you have a great day.